Hello, and welcome to the SLAS New Matters podcast. I am joined by Martin Jones from the Crink Institute in London, UK. And I believe you are communicating from an open space at the Crick. So we'll hear some excellent crowd noise behind you. Yes? That's right. <laughs> All right. Martin, yeah, tell me. One of the uh, core principles of the Crick is being open. Yes. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do at the Crick. Right. So, yes, I work in the electron microscopy uh, science technology platform, which is the, the core facility at the Crick that um, supplies the expertise and technology for electron microscopy. But actually, my role is uh, on the kind of technology development side. So I guess my, my job description is something like building hardware and software to make imaging more efficient. Okay. And for those of us maybe who are not imaging experts, tell me about the field of imaging sort of very top level. What, what's involved in imaging? So for a long time in biology, the, the way you, you understand your sample is you, you look at it and you know, we, we often need to look at things that are much smaller than the eye can see, or maybe we need to see things, uh, you know, use x-ray scans to look through uh, solid bodies. Uh, and it's just it's a collection of different techniques to uh, visualize things at, at lots of different scales, particularly electron microscopy. We go right down to the nanometer scale. So a nanometer is uh, a billionth of a meter. So really, really small scale um, objects, which you can't possibly hope to see with uh, the naked eye. All right. And I'm, I'm sure that most people on here are familiar with light microscopy. Tell me a little bit about how electron microscopy differs. You're not necessarily using classic light, so you're doing something different with the physics. Yeah, exactly. So um, one of the unfortunate things about light microscopy is the physics limits you to the smallest object you can see is limited by the wavelength of the light you're using, which is typically on a couple of hundred nanometers scale, and which is fine for a lot of things. But a lot of the really interesting stuff happens down at the few nanometer scale and and you just can't resolve that in a, in a light microscope. So instead we use electrons, which um, again, if you run the equations and do the maths, that they effectively have a, a wavelength which is much shorter than light. So they can see things, image things that are much smaller, but there's a lot of overheads, which mean that you, know, you, you can use light microscopes at school. You, you put your sample under um, a lens and, and you see things quite naturally. Electrons, you have to jump through lots more hoops. Um, electrons don't travel in air very well, so we have to run the whole system under vacuum. Uh, the samples have to be prepared in a certain way, um, which basically always means it's a, it's a dead sample, so we can't do live imaging. We have to do lots of chemical processing to make the, the sample uh, useful under vacuum. If you just put a normal cell in a vacuum chamber, it will boil and explode probably. So uh, we have to play certain tricks to, to get around that. Just just like in outer space, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, and and we, we some of the techniques we use involve uh, cryogenics as well. So it, it can be very much like you might imagine in the, uh, some sort of space horror movie of things out in the vacuum, cold vacuum of space. Space horror movie and electron microscopy. I love it. So so you describe this as being a, a lot of preparation, a lot of infrastructure around it, and that you yourself both do hardware and software. So so tell me a little bit about your uh, sort of day-to-day -day life in this career? Are you more managing a team? Are you more building out a facility? Are you more preparing samples or a combination of multiple things? I guess a combination of all those. I think just the last couple of years, it's been um, directing the team who do much better work than I do, which is probably probably good for all involved. But um, <laughs> Always yeah, the case. Yeah, yeah. Get, get as far away from the uh, um, breakable stuff as possible. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a, a lot of it is you know, the, the big problem that's hit all kinds of imaging 
in the last few years is the big data problem. So a lot of our day-to-day work is trying to solve the problems that come with that. I do remember uh, looking back at your talk from the 2019 High Content Analysis and 3D Biology meeting that we held um, back in London at your institute. You talked about how you could do overnight collection with your electron microscopy setup. And on a cell, you would generate a volume cube that would generally fill up an entire hard drive. Just one night of sampling. Um, And you talked about some ways to get around that. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about big data and your exploration of it through these techniques. Yeah, so the the big data really comes from this increased automation. So for a long time, electron microscopy has been around for a long time, I think since the 1930s. And people have acquired these, you know, exquisitely detailed images, but it's always been at a very low rate. So uh, it was much more like photography, I guess. So you, you have a, a sample or a subject you want to image, you take a snapshot, and then you um, that's that imaging run done. You go and you, you peruse the results and, and see what you find. Um, now, uh, what we can do is, rather than doing lots of complicated sample preparation outside, so uh, one method we use is to take a, something like a cell and to slice it into very, very thin sections, say less than 100 nanometers thick, mm-hmm. and then image them one by one. And in the past, that was incredibly laborious and doing more than a few uh, tens of images is heroic effort. Um, now, in the last um, decade or so, it's been possible to, to do that slicing inside the electron microscope. So there are a couple of commercial systems now where you can do that slicing entirely automatically. And that's where this sudden thousand images overnight comes from. We, we put the sample in, we take an, an image of the surface, and then we slice away a tiny sliver, just maybe 50 nanometers thick. Uh, and then we image it again, and we repeat, and we do it a thousand times. And uh, at the end of the, the day, we've filled up a, more or less filled up a hard drive. Right. And, and you have the data and it's interpretable in the slices, which can be assembled by software, I'm assuming, to give you an idea of what the cell looked like. But then there's still some challenges, right? Because as you also have uh, alluded to in your talk, there's some human easy machine hard problems like defining boundaries of organelles or, or tissues or membranes. Can you talk a little bit about how we as people help the computer along? Yeah, exactly. For a long time, microscopy is very qualitative pursuit. So you look at something and you you see, oh, it's got this thing in it, or it hasn't. And now it's become much more quantitative. And so just kind of eyeballing the image isn't really enough now. We need to extract some sort of numbers from it if we want to be able to, for example, test a new drug. Uh, we might be looking at a, a drug that uh, looks to solve some problems related to, say, cancer. And we want to see if that drug has stopped the, the cell from being able to divide or something like that. And um, to really understand the effects, we need to quantify things. We need to have put some confidence on, you know, we are this sure that this effect is true and it's not just some random, by luck, we saw something that looked good and, and uh, really, actually, it wasn't doing anything at all. Um, and it's the holy grail is to completely automate all of the analysis by computer. So you take an image that you know, maybe of a cell and it's got the nucleus and the mitochondria and we might want to look at the shape of the nucleus. So maybe this new drug could affect the shape of the nucleus in a way that stops the cancer cell dividing. Um, but what quantifying, describing a shape in, in some sort of mathematically um, manageable way is, is very tricky. And um, the computer just sees pixels. It doesn't know what more curved or less curved means. Um, right. So we, we It sees a blob to, of blue and it, it just doesn't know whether that's an organelle yeah, or a stain exactly. or a fleck in the image, whatever. Exactly. There's no sort of intrinsic 
concept. You know, we, we have all of this sort of baggage that we've learned over the years, and we understand, we recognise that thing. That's you know, that's obviously a mitochondrion, or that's obviously the nucleus. Uh, and it's it's just not that simple for a computer. And I, I spent a lot of years doing image analysis and using sort of what you might call classical computer vision techniques uh, to try and extract these things. And you, you try and build a set of rules that say, you know, if this and this and this, then this is this object, the mitochondria, for example. Um, mm. so, so if it's um, a vehicle and it has tires and a windshield and a boot, etc., it might be a car, but it might also be a yeah. truck. <laughs> exactly. And in biology, coming over, I used to be a, a physicist uh, where everything's very clear-cut and mathematically uh, well-defined in biology. I've learned there's nothing like that at all. And it's, um, it's very, uh, very noisy and there's always uh, extra surprises for you when you think you've solved the problem and, and it turns out that you really haven't. And, and so the, the thing that um, we've always ended up going back to humans as being the, the gold standard for this sort of analysis. So we, um, if you want to be certain about something uh, or as certain as one can be, uh, you get an expert to look at it and analyze it. And for us, that often means they sit down and they draw lines around things, maybe over you know, 500 slices in an image, uh, they draw a line around it. And then once you've done that, you can piece together the structure, so the, say the nucleus or, or the mitochondria in, in the cell. Um, wow, that seems incredibly laborious for one single person. <laughs> exactly. So, so this is, uh, you know, one night of acquisition could keep a single person busy for years. So obviously that doesn't scale. So um, <laughs> in, in this sort of period before we have this uh, you know, magic solution that the computer does it all automatically, um, we're still in this area where we need humans to kind of uh, either completely do it or to help the computers to, to do it as well as possible. And, and that's where we uh, have shifted our focus now, um, particularly towards there's these new machine learning, deep learning techniques, which work extraordinarily well, but they, um, they require this input of uh, a huge amount of pre-analyzed data. So it's kind of like you know, practice exams. You, you're, you're given a bunch of questions and you answer them and then you compare them to the actual answers at the end. And that's what we try and do with the computer. We try and train them to be able to make the right decisions but we just need to give them a lot of the correct answers to about training and test data. But um, I think that where you're going with this, I'm hoping anyway, is to talk about a citizen science project that you guys are also invested in, in which you are defining the barriers of cells a little bit better and informing your deep learning algorithm. Yeah, exactly. So, so we have a, a project called uh, Etchacell. Uh, the, the website is etchacell.org if anybody wants to have a go. Uh, and we're, uh, we've, we've now got two different projects on there. Uh, and what we're doing is we're using the fact that humans generally, you know, we've evolved for millions of years to be very good at vision processing. So we, we recognize, you know, in the distant past, we recognize predators and poison berries and, and all sorts of things with very high accuracy. And, and so we've, uh, even though we don't realize we're doing it all the time, we're processing huge amounts of, of visual information in ways that computers still um, can't do that. Uh, and, right, and Pre precognition, out, right? You can see a snake before you see a snake. Right, yeah, exactly. You have a bunch of concepts already that you understand, which might be as simple as you know, line and blob and corner or that sort of thing, all the way up to the nucleus undergoing cell division 
uh, mm-hmm. if you're uh, trained up to a certain level. And and one of the suspicions, I think, is that you know to be able to do this sort of analysis, then you you need to have a PhD in biology to recognise the the things that we we want to analyse. And and that's probably true of some things, but other things um, it may be a bit less true. So, for example, most people maybe at school have seen what a cell is and what the nucleus is, and even if they haven't. It's um, at that level. It's relatively quick to train somebody with a few example images. Here's the thing: we want you to look for this thing. Now, here's another point. That thing in this image is is something that you know you, you can't really easily tell a computer to do, but you can tell a child to do. And uh, well, <laughs> yes, it's the round bumpy thing inside of the larger round bumpy thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, and uh, yeah, I, I challenge you to write a computer program to define round bumpy thing. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody listening to this will immediately understand what that means. Yes, that's fair. Excellent. And and what kind of results have you seen to date? Um, so what we've seen is, fortunately, the suspicion that you need a PhD to to be able to do this seems to not be true for the for the organelles that we've tried so far. So we're working on the nuclear envelope, so the membrane around the nucleus, and also just recently we released uh, a project for uh, mitochondria. So we have people uh, they log on to the the website. Uh, hsl.org and uh, they can choose one of the projects and then uh, we give them a quick tutorial and uh, we just ask people to use their mouse or their stylus to trace around the the objects we've um, we're identifying in that project and the results are great we've had over 6,000 people from around the world uh, wow I think we've had about 150,000 images have been drawn on by these people and um, the results, you know, we're just uh, analysing the first set of results. Uh, the, the real acid test of it is can we use those results to either you know, produce analyses that are as good as the expert doing it, or mm-hmm. can we use them to train the computer to do that process just as well? And and it turns out, it seems from our initial studies and hopefully to be published very soon that. That this is in fact true, and we can use these um, citizen science outputs to produce good answers on their own, but also for if we really want to speed things up, feeding into these machine learning algorithms, uh, we, we're getting excellent results. Of, of course, and the sky's the limit, right? Because once you've done this, you can obviously do just about any organelle in the cell or any kind of ternary complex or antibody or whatever have you that you need to have a human identify that's hard for a computer to define. Yeah, exactly. As long as, so the, with the caveat that the um, when you're asking non-experts, it's got to be something you can explain to them in a... Quickly. Uh, it, yeah, it, quickly. So we don't want people to be sitting for hours in front of a screen. We want people to be able to drop in, you know, maybe do it while they're waiting for their bus or while they're at an airport waiting to go to the next conference or something like that. It's just something that if you can explain it to them simply, uh, then probably they can they can find it. Um, but of course, you get to you know, at some point in this list of organelles and, and you'll get to somewhere you know, people will high profile academics at conferences will argue over the identity of these things and, and that's not a good target for asking <laughs> an expert because the experts don't know but I guess that's a different question. Right. Understood. Um, that's amazing. And one more time, that's etchacell.org. So if you want to play along, please do. And I'm sure Martin's group will appreciate your results. Um, I'd like to shift in this fa- last few minutes we have to you personally. Um, first, a fun question. What is the most exciting lab moment, discovery, or professional accomplishment you've experienced? I, I think it's when you know. sometimes you have these quite 
expansive projects that involve lots of different things. And there's uh, one of the hardware projects we had involved um, squeezing a, a tiny light microscope inside one of these big electron microscopes that, that slices, you know, the one that produces a thousand inches overnight and it slices the, the sample. Uh, and we have a, you know, it's a three millimeter gap that we've got to get this light microscope into. Um, it's really real engineering challenge, which we, we have a fantastic workshop at the Crick and they've helped us um, a lot. And we, we've uh, worked with ex- external companies to, to build the lenses, these tiny little uh, sets of optics. Uh, and then there's the electronics that go with it and the, the sample preparation that people have to do to, to be able to um, make a sample that works for both fluorescence microscopy and electron microscopy. Um, there's the software you have to write to to make it all work in synchrony with the electron microscope. And, and all of these things, each one of them is a hard problem and you know, no guarantee that they would be possible or would work. And then when you, you know, the first time you run it and it works, I think that is, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a very nice feeling. And we were lucky enough to, to get that when we um, built this correlative and the electron microscope system. When the whole program comes together and you can watch the full fruit of your labors come, that's great. Exactly. Excellent. Um, and what tips do you have uh, for younger generations of scientists, especially in these fields in imaging, optics, automation, hardware? Um, what would you tell them to do to be successful? So I think for me, I'm probably a bit biased because I'm a physicist coming, so I'm an outsider coming into to this sort of um, biomedical field. But it does seem to me very much the traditional barriers of you know biology, physics, chemistry, maths, engineering are a bit meaningless. But I think if you're not straddling a couple of those, um, you're maybe unnecessarily restricting your your options. And I mean, one one particular example I'd say is computer programming. Mm-hmm. Almost everything we do now involves handling you know, computer files of some sort, um, dealing with images or the data files that come from those um, studies. And uh, of course, you can do these things in a sort of Microsoft Office sort of environment and you know, maybe you'll eventually get the right answer, but it's the sort of thing that just a little bit of knowledge. You don't need to be, uh, you know, expert. You don't need to be sort of Google DeepMind level expert, <laughs> but you you could, you know, just do a little bit of scripting. It can save so much time, and and you know, nobody likes doing these manual point and click things. But sometimes I feel people are a bit scared of learning that new thing, programming, and it's sort of a bit alien because maybe it wasn't part of the curriculum when you're growing up or when you're studying but I think it's not as scary as people think and once you have got it certainly career-wise I think it opens a lot of doors. Exactly we've we've interviewed several people on this podcast that have said that they would even advocate the revolutionary stance which perhaps isn't even revolutionary here in 2020 that uh, scientists start to use programming scripting and modeling very earlier in their careers maybe even in place of some of the more traditional training so your, your opinion is well heard and well received. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. And then uh, one last thing, your overlap with SLAS. Obviously, you've uh, been a speaker for us and now a podcast interviewee. Um, Is there any other uh, ways you hope to get involved or anyone specific you hope to meet and network with as the org evolves and your career evolves? So I think the, as I say, that one of the big problems that's, that's facing everyone is, is this problem of big data. And that's, that's become, you know, although I'm from a slightly different field than I suppose the core SAS audience, actually a lot of the problems are 
general. They're abstracted away from exactly what sort of data you've got. It's, it's just a problem of how do I get this much data from here to here, or how do I write the best machine learning, learning algorithm to analyze a petabyte of data? Or you know, those are questions that are somehow separate from the, the gory details. And it's not totally clear to me that there's enough uh, communication between the, the different fields on best practice for those. So everyone comes up with their own solution. It's normally a good solution. Um, but if you've got you know, 10 different imaging communities working on solving the same problem, you know, maybe you could either do it 10 times faster or 10 times better if everyone spoke to each other. So I'm a very big advocate of, uh, of these sort of broader communities uh, mixing a bit more than they have in the past. Hey, fostering interdisciplinarity and communication across disciplines, I, I'm right there with you. So I'm glad that you are advancing this particular uh, idea because we're, we're right there with you. Um, everybody cross disciplines listening, please keep going. All right. Um, so Martin, thank you very much for your time today. Um, any closing words you want to share with our audience? Well, apart from have a go at HSL, I, I think uh, <laughs> it's... It's, uh, I mean, as well as uh, you know, helping the science, you know, you don't need to be an electron microscopy um, aficionado. It's, it's, a, it's a nice way of learning new stuff. We even have people look at the data and say, oh, you know, biology um, doctors, you know, they, they see things. I, I never knew it looked like that. And um, I think just uh, immersing yourself a bit in, in these other other areas is, is well worth doing and something I had to do very quickly as a physicist. Excellent. So one more time, that's etchacell.org. And Martin, thank you very much for your time today. And we look forward to talking to you again. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. <laughs>